It was the great American thinker, Mike Tyson, who once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, I want to tell you a story about this guy named Barry Keenan. Barry Keenan had a plan. Now, you probably have no idea who Barry Keenan is. That's okay. If you do, then we could talk after. How did you find out about this person? But if you don't, which is most of you, here's what you need to know about this guy. In the early 60s, Barry Keenan decided that he was going to kidnap Frank Sinatra, you know, the old singer, his son. Now, he did. Okay, we'll get to that later on in the story. But whatever kind of person you think or you might think a kidnapper would be, Barry wasn't it. That's what made the story so fascinating. Barry, he grew up with every advantage that you could possibly have growing up in the 60s. He grew up in Malibu, California, beautiful beach town. He grew up in a wealthy family. He went to school with all of these celebrities' kids and rich people's kids. After he graduated from high school and he got into adulthood, he got into real estate, he got into the stock market. He was one of the youngest people in the LA Stock Exchange. I didn't even know that was a thing, but he was in it. He was trading. He was investing. He was super successful. He said that he was making 10K a month. And this is in the 1960s. So this guy is like 22 years old and he's filthy rich. Okay. He's crazy rich. Everything is going exactly how his life was laid out for him from the beginning until he got punched in the mouth, so to speak. The market had a big downturn in 62 or 63 around there, and he found himself struggling financially for the first time in his entire life. He uh, got out of real estate. He had to start uh, taking up this job as a door-to-door salesman of transparent window shades. So he was doing these things that he felt like were beneath him. He started drinking. He got addicted to painkillers. His life was spiraling out of control. And for a kid who grew up in Malibu, California with a silver spoon in his mouth, this was rock bottom. Okay, he felt like his life was over. Life had punched Barry Keenan in the mouth. So in his own words, he thought to himself, kidnapping seemed like a good idea. So he wrote up a business plan, an actual business plan. That's kind of the way he thought. He would ask for a ransom of exactly $240,000 because according to his calculations, that's how much he needed to invest in some new things to make the money back so he could pay back the ransom money, but also support his parents on the side. Okay, he's he's thinking. It was a five-year plan. He did a cost-benefit analysis where he thought about all the ways this would benefit not only him and his family, but also the Sinatra family. Because they were kind of going through some stuff, some drama in the tabloids. Frank Sinatra, if you guys remember this, he was kind of connected to the mob. And people were kind of turning against him in public opinion. So he was like, if I kidnap his son, people will feel bad for the Sinatra family. And they'll like them more. Win, 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 right? This is going to help everybody. But let me repeat his words for you. Kidnapping seemed like a good idea. I think it goes without saying Now, kidnapping is bad. Okay, I'll say it anyway. Kidnapping is bad. It's wrong. And so very few people randomly wake up and decide, oh, this would be a good thing to do in my life. This would be a good idea. I'll just try kidnapping some kid. So how do we, how do people end up doing things like this? That's the first question. How do people end up justifying terrible things as good ideas? How do people end up becoming something that their younger selves wouldn't even be able to imagine? Do you think Barry Keenan, as a kid at Malibu High School, thought he would grow up 
to kidnap Frank Sinatra's son. The funny thing is, he went to school with Frank, Sinatra, Frank Sinatra's daughter, who was, uh, I think, the older sister of the son. So she, he actually knew this family personally. It's very strange. How do people go from here to there? They get punched in the mouth. And see, the thing is, I honestly think that this is how it is for all of us, in a sense. Maybe not as extreme. I hope not. I hope none of you are planning to kidnap someone right now. If you are, maybe you could talk to James about counseling or something. But what I mean is, wouldn't we all, even if it's not that extreme, wouldn't we all be living differently if our lives were going differently? Let me give you an example. Fathers, let me talk to you here. Maybe, you know, when you first got married, when you first decided to have a family, when you first held your baby in the hospital or whatever for the first time, you never thought that you would be here right now, right, mentally checked out as much as you are. You never thought that you would be as angry and annoyed all the time as you are. But here you are. Why is that? It's because your kids, they're hard, right? They weren't as, they're not as innocent as they felt in the hospital when you held them for the first time. Kids aren't the easiest. And then if you think about all the other reasons, work has been crazy lately, your health hasn't been the best, you haven't been sleeping. See, this is how it works. In a vacuum, you'd never think, oh yeah, coming home to my kids that I love, that came from, you know, me and my wife's own, you know, like DNA, you never think you'd come home and yell at them and think that that's a good idea every single day. And yet what happens is your boss lays into you, you sit through an hour of traffic after the first thing, uh, the first thing you see when you get home from work is your kids fighting over a toy and it's just so silly and dumb to you. It's just loud in the house. And you think to yourself in that moment, because of all those other things, you know what? Yelling at my kids sounds like a pretty good idea. That's how you get there. And I don't mean to just pick on the fathers. You could plug in mothers. You could plug in husbands and wives, spouses with each other, kids. You could think about how you are as a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a student or whatever. And since this is church, let me just broaden it out. You guys are here. Maybe not all of you are Christian. Maybe you're just checking out Christianity. We welcome you here. But you understand that most people here are Christian. Most people here consider themselves, call themselves to be followers of Jesus. I'm sure a lot of you had an idea of how things would go when you first became a Christian. You know, whatever you did, you, you walked down the aisle, you raised your hand, you prayed a prayer, or you threw a pine cone into the fire. And I know you guys know that that doesn't make you a Christian, but whatever it was that symbolized your decision, your baptism, that decision to follow after Jesus, to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to live a different life, you thought that it was just going to go a certain way, right? That you would love God more and more and more every month, right? That you get more involved in church, that you would serve more. Maybe you'd start leading certain things in church. You would get married to a nice Christian man or a nice Christian woman. You'd have a godly family. You would love your kids and raise them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord. You would grow in your Bible knowledge. You'd probably read the Bible like 50 times by now, right? Because you love the Word so much. You'd be praying, whatever it is. And maybe you didn't have a clear outline, you know, like a, a clear plan, but you had an idea. You never thought you didn't expect, certainly, to be fighting with your spouse now like you are. You didn't expect to be so apathetic about spiritual disciplines like you are. You didn't expect to be so inconsistent with church 
like you are, so caught up in habitual sin like you are, but here you are. And you know, it's just things got crazy. Life punched me in the mouth. In an ideal world, I'd be a faithful Christian. I'd be a better husband. I'd be a better brother. I'd be a better father to my kids. But this isn't an ideal world. You know, one of the things I love about the scriptures is that they're realistic. The Word of God, it's a divine book, but it's not a detached book. It's a human book. We read in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is meant to communicate God's words to us in this world. So the Bible doesn't shy away from brokenness, suffering, terrible evil, and just the overall messiness of life. And we see that especially, I think, in these books of Samuel. If you've been with us, okay, we're introduced to these people. Okay, one of the most interesting things about the books of Samuel is that they follow, the story follows these people in their lives throughout the ups and downs. Right now, we're with David. Now, the book is called Samuel. If you haven't been with us, okay, understand the book is called Samuel, but Samuel is going to fade away in the background now, and David is going to take the spotlight. David, from here on out, is going to dominate the narrative. The rest of 1 Samuel and pretty much all of 2 Samuel, David is going to be front and center. And the thing about David in particular is that of all the men, all the people in Scripture, I think we get deeper in David than almost anyone else. I mean, we basically see him as a kid. We see him grow up, and we see his thoughts. We get his psalms, his own reflections on things. We see him at his highest points. We also see him at his lowest failures. A lot of people, maybe they get a chapter or two. We see a couple highlights, maybe one low light. David is like we see his entire life. Like his whole heart is vivisected for us. We just get to watch everything. So far, we're early in the story. We've seen David get anointed. We've seen him chosen by God. We see him slay a giant because he has this great faith. It's very inspiring. We saw him got married. We heard about this 200 foreskin thing. If you don't know what that is, you can ask James about it later. But we saw a trajectory of David's life. So far, it's been up and up and up. Things have been good. David is anointed. He wins and wins and wins. God is with him, and he is with God. He is an example of virtue and faith and courage. Now, meanwhile, King Saul degenerates into despair and madness, turning away from God. And you see these two disjointed paths, and you think that David is good, Saul is bad. But then we see David get punched in the mouth. We already saw this the past couple of chapters. Saul tries to kill him. God delivers him. Saul tries to kill him again. God delivers him. Saul tries to kill him again, and again, and again, and again. And for the first time in this narrative, we see David really start to feel the pressure of what's going on. For the first time in this narrative, we see David actually start to crack a little bit. He is a man after God's own heart. We see the man part of that. And this leads to our first point. Three points today, as usual. We're going to look at this text under three headings. First, The pressure. The pressure. Let's just go right into it. The pressure. David has had to literally dodge spears. He's playing his music for Saul. Saul throws a spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall. Jonathan has risked his neck for him. Michal, Saul's daughter, helped him escape from their house when Saul sent his goons to go get him. David went to Samuel, the prophet, 
for help. The Holy Spirit delivers him. And yet after all of this, after all of these close calls, after all of this deliverance, David is still on the run. Saul is relentless. The problem has not been solved, only extended. There's no end in sight. Excuse me. And this clearly starts to wear on David, and we really see it for the first time in 1 Samuel 21. You know, I used to run in high school. I shared about this before. Uh, I only have, like, limited life experience. You know, I'm only in my 30s, so i got to share the same stuff over and over again. But I don't think I've talked about this. The thing about running okay, is that you don't run just for fun or just to get in shape. You run to race to win, right? That's why you do it. It's competitive, right? It's not just because I like wearing short shorts and going outside and running on the beach or whatever like that. So we would run to race to win, right? It was competitive. Now, the thing is, if you're like me, kind of a lower level competitive runner, right? When you're racing, you can see the pain, Pretty much in, like, my entire existence, right? On my face, in my forearm, my arm, I'm, like, running like this. Like, I'm breathing all hard. Pain, the, the running kind of pain is crazy, right? It starts off, like, almost, like, deep within your bones, and it's, like, this nerve pain, like, lactic acid in your bloodstream, and you're, you feel like you're cramping. Like, you feel like you're dying, okay? But you got to keep pushing because you're trying to get to the finish line. You can't give up until you cross that finish line. So for me, you can see it. I'm dying. I want to give up like after one mile to three mile race. But here's the thing, okay? You might not know this, but every competitive runner knows that the best runners, like if you watch the Olympics, okay? If you saw the Olympics, you watched like the marathon or something, the best runners, you can't tell how much in pain they are, okay? Like even, unless they're injured or something, but even though they're pushing themselves to the brink of what a human is capable of, you see them, and they're just running with that perfect stride, right? They're breathing hard, but it's controlled. Their form doesn't break. You don't see it until they cross the finish line, and they collapse, and they're, like, dying and breathing all hard. But to the set, like, literally, one step before the finish line, they're running just like they ran in the very beginning. They're able to push through it. That's what separates the elite from regular people like me. Now, the thing is, I remember hearing this one high-level runner say, you know, to people like me, they said, watch closely, and you can actually see that they're in pain. I'm like, no, you can't. Like, they look the same. He said, no, watch closely, and you can see that every once in a while, they will stumble a little bit, or something in their form will break. And I bet you, if you watch, I don't know if you'll be able to tell if you don't run, but if you watch elite runners, you might be able to see it, just a little bit of a grimace. Just a little bit of a step that's off. Or maybe their arm moves a little bit. You'll see them slightly stumble, even if just for a millisecond. And I bring this up because David truly is elite. So far, okay, I'm not trying to say that David is actually evil. David is elite. He is a spiritual giant, okay, pun intended. He is the man after God's own heart. We're not denying that. He is the chosen king. He is the one who stepped up to the plate against Goliath and defeated him by faith. So far, he's been under tremendous stress. I mean, his life is in constant danger. And we've been watching him, and he has stood up to the challenge. Okay, he's been going from place to place to place. He's on the run, but his faith is strong. He doesn't deny God. He doesn't run away. He doesn't turn away. He's, he's been relatively unfazed. But here, what the author of 1 Samuel does it shows us that David is just a man. And now that he's here, after all this time, 
you can see his form begin to break a little bit. In fact, we see him stumble in two ways. Verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Okay, so real quick, let me just set the scene for you a little bit. Nob is about a mile from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. Remember this? So you can see the city of Jerusalem from Nob. And Nob is where they set up the tabernacle after Shiloh was destroyed. That was back in earlier in 1 Samuel. Okay, so that's where the priests are. That's where the tabernacle is. And David goes to Nob, and he meets with Ahimelech, the high priest at the time, and he wants help. Now, Ahimelech comes out, and he knows who David is. But he's heard the rumors probably that something is off with David or with Saul or between them or both. That's why he comes out scared. So he asks him, David, good to see you. But where is everyone? You know, he's, he can't even contain his nerves. He's shaking. Verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. So basically, he, he says, I'm on a secret mission for Saul, which I can't talk about. Now, if you were here even a couple weeks ago, is he on a secret mission for Saul? No, he's not. Okay, He's on the run from Saul for his life. So what is David doing here in verse 2? He's lying. And this is the first sign that something is not right with David. Now, we've got to talk about lying a little bit. Let me just ask you guys, are you someone, okay, who believes that lying is always wrong, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, no matter your intentions? Or are you someone who believes that lying is usually wrong, but sometimes, you know, if the circumstances are a certain way or your intentions are good, your motivation is good, lying is justified. For instance, you know, like lying to save someone's life. It's not an easy question. Okay, we've kind of skirted this question throughout the book because we've seen some people lie. We saw Mikal lie to save David. We saw Jonathan lie just last story when he lied to Saul about where David was. It's not an easy question. And when we turn to the scriptures, we see kind of two different messages a little bit. For example, first of all, we see verses like Exodus 20, verse 16. That's one of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or back in Proverbs, where uh, we were just this summer, Proverbs twelve twenty two, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. God hates lying. Lying is bad, you could say. And yet the lie here rolls so easily off of David's tongue. Now, there's more to this. Some commentators, if you study this passage, they'll argue that David, okay, he did lie. Lying is usually not good. But it seems like maybe his motivation was good here. See, if he lies to Ahimelech, the high priest, then when Saul questions Ahimelech, he has an excuse. He can say, I didn't know that you guys had problems, or I didn't know that you had beef. He told me that he was serving you, so I thought I was helping you, so he could be kind of innocent, he could wash his hands of it. And we see some of this kind of thinking in Scripture, right? That's where commentators go. We see people who lie, and it seems like it helps. For example, Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? At Jericho, she lies to protect the spies to save their lives. We think about the Hebrew midwives at the beginning of Exodus. They lie to save these babies from Pharaoh. And it seems like God blesses them afterwards. And then, of course, Jonathan lying for David before Saul. So some argue that what David is doing here isn't actually wrong. 
But I think that this misses the point. Okay, here's the thing, okay? The Bible never praises people for the lies they tell. It might praise them for how they wanted to help or their faith or how they feared God, but it never says that the lies themselves are good. Sometimes people lie for good reasons to help people because they were in a bind. There seems to be grace for that. God sees the heart behind our actions. But here's the thing about this text. Does David need to lie here? I don't think he does. We could argue the ethics all day. We won't, but here's the point. David chose an uncharacteristic willingness to bend the rules. We might see this later on, but we haven't seen this yet. We haven't seen David so willing to skirt with sin. He knows how God feels about deceit. We know this because In his own words, if you read his own psalms, here's an example. Psalm 34, that's what James read for the call to worship today. Psalm 34, 12 and 13. This is what David wrote. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He knows that you should run away from lying. And yet, what does he do? He runs right into a lie. Something's off. And this gets clearer in the second way. Okay, we'll come back to this idea. But this gets clearer in the second way he stumbles because he stumbles again right after this. Look at verse 3. He goes right into saying, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Keep reading. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. That the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priests gave them the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken. Okay, so there's a lot there. That's kind of a mouthful. Let me just give you the gist of what's going on here. In the tabernacle, okay, in the makeshift tent temple that they had before the temple was built, there was an offering of bread to the Lord. It was holy. They would bake new bread. Every few days, they would put it out for God, and it was for God. It was worship. Okay, you guys following me? When the bread went stale, when the bread got old, they would replace it with new bread for God. And the old bread, the priests could eat. You can read about this more in Leviticus 24. If you're really into Leviticus, check it out. Read it. Other places in the law, it talks about it too. This bread was only for the priests. Okay, it wasn't for rando people. It wasn't even for the king. It was for the priests, the sons of Aaron alone. So David goes to the temple and he says, do you have any bread? And the priest says, I only got our bread. And this is a big deal. There's tension here. There's a t- he doesn't know quite what to do. Now, you might argue, okay, that the law was not written to forbid the truly starving from receiving food. Okay, you can go to Mark 3. You can look at what Jesus was doing there especially for the Lord's anointed. I mean, Jesus got into this again and again with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. If you have more questions about this, we can talk about it afterwards. But here's what I want to point out. I want to show you what's actually going on here. Ahimelech, you can tell he wants to help David. If he, didn't think, if he thought the bread was off limits, he'd say, sorry, we, we don't got any. But he says, okay, I do have bread. It's just the special bread of the presence. See, he sees that David is in real need. You can tell that he wants to help him, but he also wants to uphold the law. So what does he do? He compromises. 
He says, well, are you pure? That's the whole, like, have you kept yourselves from women thing. See, if you sleep with a person, then you are ritually unclean for that day. Okay, let me just keep it simple like that. He asks if the men have kept themselves from sexual relations with women. He wants to know, are you ritually, ceremonially clean? He's compromising. I'll give you this bread as long as you're clean. I don't want to break the law completely, but I know that you need help. He feels the tension. He knows he's not supposed to do this, but he also wants to try to please God. He's getting torn apart inside. What does he do? He gives David the bread. Now, go back to the lie and think about the bread. In both cases, there's moral ambiguity. In fact, a lot of sermons just focus on, is lying really wrong? Like, can we go to all these different things? Should he eat the bread or not? I feel like there's some place to argue about that, to talk about that, but I think the Pharisees are the ones who push those things too far. We've got to take a step back and understand that there's some moral ambiguity here in the text. It doesn't say exactly if it's right or wrong, and I think that that's the point. It's not about the ethics of lying or about what sense in which the law must be obeyed. It's about how David, for the first time, is willing to wade into the waters of moral ambiguity. I mean, who swims in these waters all the time? It's Saul. I've talked about how Saul and David are similar in certain ways. They're both good warriors. They both look good to the eye. But what I've said is the key difference between these two men is that Saul is willing to just run away from God. David always holds fast to God. God departed from Saul. God stayed with David. And yet what we see here, under the pressure of Saul's relentless persecution, David is willing to become a little bit more like Saul in how he operates. David stumbles. You might think that he's just running fine, that he doesn't fall at all until the Bathsheba thing way later. But right here, you can see the cracks in his form. He's breathing harder. He's grimacing. Here to us, the readers, he actually looks, in a certain light, a little bit like Saul, the son of Kish. And see, remember, the Word of God is a mirror. We're not supposed to just look at it. We're supposed to look at ourselves in it. What do you see? I mean, if you consider your life in the mirror of this text, what do you see? Now, when you first read this text, you have no idea what it's about. But if you think about it as somebody who is under a lot of pressure and who starts drifting towards compromising his own integrity, what do you see there? Look at yourself. Are there ways in which you become what you swore you'd never become? Just like your flaky father, right? Or like your controlling mother. Or like those lukewarm Christians that you used to hate on all the time when you first became a Christian. I'm never going to grow up like them who barely show up at church and barely read the Bible. I'm going to be way more on fire. Of course, there are reasons we end up where we end up. There are always reasons. There are reasons why David felt cornered like he did. We see that. But first ask yourself before you say, well, it's just because of this and this. Okay, you got to understand the reason why I ended up this way is because... Whatever the reason is, don't make it an excuse. Just ask yourself, is this where I want to be right now? Is this the kind of person I want to be? Is this the kind of parent I want to be? The kind of brother or sister, the kind of Christian, the kind of person that I want to be, that God wants me to be? Is this good? 
Because you've got to understand that even if there are reasons why you're the way you are, there are also consequences to the way you are and what you do. Verse 7, it's kind of an aside, but look at this. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So real quick, the camera just pans over to this guy lurking in the shadows, one of Saul's servants detained before the Lord. What does that mean? It means that he's there because he's required to be there. He's not there to sacrifice. He's not there to worship. He's one of Saul's guys who's on duty, who's on patrol. He's stationed at the tabernacle for this day. He's required. So really what we see is that Saul has eyes on everything that's going on. Now in the next, very next chapter, in the next section, we're going to see that there are dire consequences to what David does here by involving the priests. His willingness to bend the rules, to play fast and loose with right and wrong, leads to something sinister. Doag, this guy, is going to kill every single one of the priests in the tabernacle, save one. I would argue David should have at least told the priests what was going on so they could decide if they want to help David or not. So at least they could have the responsibility. At least they could have the knowledge. He should have put it in their hands. But he doesn't, and they pay the price for what David does. Now, look, hopefully this is clear, okay? But I know that life is not easy. For any of us. And I've talked to most of you guys, at least to a certain like to a certain extent, about what's going on personally. And even if you're watching online, I've talked to you guys too. I know that life isn't easy for you. There are challenges, there are trials, there are certain temptations that you face that only you face, maybe. But as your pastor, I need to warn you that there will be consequences for what you do and who you become no matter what the reasons are. Okay, I have compassion. I want to support you. I want to help you. I understand, okay? Life is hard. It's hard for me too. I make mistakes and I am tempted to justify them. But texts like this remind us that even if we feel like we're justified in doing what we do, at the end of the day, we are going to reap what we sow in some way. Like work might be crazy. Your boss might be unreasonable. Maybe people rely on you and count on you. That's why you're spending so many extra hours at work. But trust me, if you neglect your marriage, even if you're doing this for your family, right? I'm working harder for you, wife. Even if you try to justify it, you know, I'm I'm working for my whatever. If you neglect your marriage and your family, somewhere down the line, you're going to pay the price for that. Your marriage will suffer later. Your spouse might be suffering right now because of it. Or think about this, right? It's so easy to think about why I just can't be serving God right now. You know, it's just a busy season. And I, sometimes you don't have to serve all the time. I understand that there's such a thing as sabbaticals or taking breaks. Hey, don't mishear me. But understand that the church suffers. This church suffers when you are not involved. Like if there are people that never serve but only receive service, that's hard for everyone else. And then for you personally, you will suffer the consequences of your own disobedience. It's not going to help you in the end. You're kind of borrowing from Peter to rob Paul, you know what I mean? Or whatever, I don't know what the saying is. But anyway, your relationship with God suffers when you don't spend time with him. 
Like, I think we can justify that so easily, right? Like, I'm super busy, right? I can't read the Bible right now. I'll read it tonight. We don't read it tonight. I'll read it tomorrow. Don't read it the next day because you wake up late. And there's no, it's not sinful, okay, if you don't read the Bible every day. But what I'm saying is, if you keep, if you keep doing that, if that's your mindset, then how are you going to know God? You're just going to drift further and further away. You might wake up one day and realize that you barely know him at all. And what does Matthew 7 say? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know any Christian, any professing Christian, any churchgoer that has a stated goal of showing up to the gates of heaven and Jesus saying, I never knew you. No one plans for that. A lot of people drift into it. And you know why? Because life got busy. Because a certain thing happened. There are reasons, but there are consequences. Life gets crazy. A lot of times we stumble. Sometimes we crack under the pressure. The pressure. Second, second heading, the plan. Now, this goes deeper. Okay, the plan. This goes deeper. It seems the reason David came to Nob in the first place wasn't just for bread or blessing. He could have gone to a dozen different places, if you think about it, where he could have gotten regular bread, where he wouldn't have to worry about, you know, possibly falling into sin, possibly needing to make this priest transgress his own conscience without, without having to flirt with lawlessness, without running the risk of one of Saul's goons being there. So why does he go to Nob? Because while plan A seems to be out of the question, okay, hanging out with Jonathan, right, being married to Michal, having a normal family, fighting Philistines, serving Saul, and then peacefully becoming king later. David, because things seem to be going out of control, he comes up with a plan B. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So he's still on that lie. But remember, okay, going back a little bit, remember what we know about the nation of Israel. They were not a nation well-equipped for war. That's why the Philistines were so dangerous, because the Philistines had iron weapons. There was a time in Israel where only Saul and Jonathan had real swords and real weapons. Everyone else was fighting with like garden tools that were sharpened up. Now, eventually, David got a sword. A few people had swords. But the point is, real weapons were not easy to come by in Israel. So why does David ask Ahimelech, the high priest of all people, hey, got any extra weapons lying about? Most people don't even have weapons to begin with. Most people don't have weapons to spare. Why would he ask the priest unless he already knows the answer? Verse 9, And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here. It is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. The text isn't explicit, but I think from the context, it's pretty clear cut. David knew Goliath's sword was here. That's why he came here in the first place. He wanted to get Goliath's weapon. This is why he showed up in case you thought that he wanted priestly direction, maybe he was trying to, to get some advice from God. I don't think so. David wanted the greatest sword in the land, the one that he used at his highest moment when he cut off Goliath's head in the first place, the one that made him a legend in the eyes of the people. And Ahimelech, of course he knows who David is, right? Everyone knows who David is. If anyone has the right to ask for the sword of Goliath, it's, it's David. So he gives it to him, 
And then verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul. And where does he go? And went to Achish, the king of Gath. Where was Goliath from again? He was from Gath. When David was a lowly shepherd in Bethlehem, he never would have thought, ever, you know what I'll do when I'll grow up? I'll, I'll move to Gath and live with the Philistines, our enemies. But you can see how he got here. He's tried seemingly everything in Israel, the king's son, the Lord's prophet, the priest. He's still on the run. This is David thinking outside of the box. So with David's sword in hand, David leaves Israel. He leaves the promised land, and he heads to Goliath's hometown of Gath. Now, there is some logic to this plan. We'll give David that. Maybe he's thinking the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Saul hates me now. Saul's the king of Israel. And the Philistines hate Saul and Israel, so maybe we could team up. We could collaborate. Maybe they might want to use me, since we're both wanted. Maybe David is thinking, if I bring Goliath's sword, I'll have some street cred. Right? Maybe they'll want this as a peace offering, or maybe they'll welcome me as a great warrior, something like this. So he shows up to, uh, to the gates of Gath, and his plan backfires. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Okay, so he shows up. I don't even know exactly what he was thinking. And right away they're like, hey, it's David. We know the song about him. And interestingly enough, they call David the king of the land. So what do we see there? They associate David more with Israel than even Saul with Israel. And David, he realizes right away that he has made a terrible error. Verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, so really what happens is he freaks out, and this is humiliating. He starts acting like a crazy person. David is the giant slayer. He's the one who defeated Gath's greatest champion, and yet here he is in Gath. He has struck down his 10,000s, but here he is. He's so scared. He has no escape. He basically walked himself into a death trap, so he pretends to be insane. He starts spitting all over the place. He starts, like, clawing the walls and the doors and stuff like this. He gets to the point where King Akish is like, get this disgusting guy out of my presence. You think I need people like this? David gets thrown out, and it's a close call. And I want to point this out. This is the first time. Okay, so David, okay, last time, in the last passage, we saw him kind of becoming more like Saul. Here, this is the first time that we see David actually fail in anything. He's never lost battles. He doesn't break a sweat when Goliath is right in front of him. Sure, he's been on the run, but it's been Saul's jealousy over his success that's been the cause. But here he fails so bad that he has to act like a fool in front of everybody. They laugh at him. They mock him. Now, sure, the plan was foolish. There was a logic to it. But the plan, you know, it was a long shot from the beginning. If you just think about it, he killed their city's greatest hero. He's bringing the weapon that cut off his head. He has killed 10,000. And how many of them were Philistines? I mean, what was he thinking? David has failed. And the verse that stands out the most here, I think, in light of what we've seen about David so far, is verse 12. 
And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, we can argue the merits of the plan. It was logical. It was also bad. It was a long shot. But what other options did he have? Whatever it was, the truth is his plan on paper against Goliath. Do you remember that? I'm going to go in without armor. I'm going to take five stones and a slingshot. And I'm going to face this giant who's been a warrior from his youth. Saul was shaking in his sandals. Even Jonathan, courageous as he was, didn't step up to fight Goliath. That plan was terrible. And yet it worked. So the plan, it doesn't really matter what the plan was. The difference here, the crazy thing, is that this time, David was afraid. Let me just read to you a couple of the things he said. You don't have to turn back there. But when Goliath was there, when he was a threat, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Where is that courage? Where is that faith? David before would have just said, you know, God who delivered me from the lions and the bears, he'll deliver me from Saul. No problem. But this relentless persecution has worn down David's faith. You can see it. David is a man after God's own heart, but he is still just a man. See, sometimes when you get punched in the mouth by life, it totally disorients you. You know, I don't know if you guys watch boxing or anything like that, UFC or anything. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm just saying if you watch it, okay, if you ever watch like an undefeated boxer lose for the first time, sometimes what you see is that they get totally disoriented by this experience of losing. Some of the greatest people, like they never got touched, but once someone hit them back in the face, you can see that everything falls apart. You can even see it in their eyes. They start flailing wildly. They don't know what they're doing. The whole game plan goes away. The aura of invincibility is gone. And what we see here is David starts to crack a little bit. And in Gath, he flails a little bit. See, Goliath was easy compared to this. He knew what to do. Just show up, trust God, and kill him. But Saul is a problem that he cannot just kill. Saul is the Lord's anointed. David knows I can't touch him. And Saul won't give up. Saul is crazy. Saul is actually crazy. Saul will stop at nothing to chase him to the ends of the earth. So David, he starts to lose his composure. He starts swinging wildly. He tries this crazy plan, and it almost proves fatal. When he gets punched in the mouth, for a second, at least, he takes his eyes off of the Lord. He's a completely different person. Do you see that? Now, we've got to move on. We've we got to move on, but let me just put this, out, put this out there. When life punches you in the mouth, in whatever way, it could be a small way. When a deadline comes up, when you receive a bad text, maybe, you know, you just go through a busy season at work, or you have a new kid, and you're exhausted all the time. It might not be a bad thing, but when something unexpected hits you, do you spiral? Like, do you take your eyes off the Lord? Do you become a completely different person than you usually are when you're raising your hands in worship or who you used to be when you would get up early in the morning to seek the Lord in prayer? Financial troubles, maybe. 
You figure, I need to work harder. I need to network. Start neglecting everything else in your life. Physically, your health starts to go down. Relationally, you, you don't spend time with people. Spiritually, your walk with God suffers. Maybe this is a pattern for us. Every time things get hard, we turn away from God, and we turn to our own plans of how to fix them. Health problems. We all have health problems eventually. All of us die at the end of the day. I'm not saying don't worry about your health, but sometimes when your health goes bad, you totally turn away from God. Someone says, trust in God, and you say, get out of here, you naive fool. I need to find a doctor who can help me. Country spinning out of control. You throw your whole life into figuring out politics, being an online or even an in-person activist. Look, don't get me wrong. It's okay to plan. It's okay to worry about your health a little bit, at least to care about it. It's okay to care about how the country is doing, all of that stuff. What's not okay is to throw God overboard every time there is a storm. And if it's not clear by now in this text, there will always be storms. Very rarely will there be ideal conditions for you to follow after God, to be a perfect spouse and parent, all of those things. It's always going to be hard in some way, even for the most faithful, especially sometimes for the most faithful. And this leads to the third and final point quickly. We had the pressure, the plan, David's bad plan, third, the purpose. If there's one thing we've seen in 1 Samuel so far is that God always gets what he wants, right? God always accomplishes his purposes. He's able to do what he wants anytime, anywhere, anyway. He's sovereign. So when things don't go the way that we think that they should, it's not because God failed. It's because God has other purposes. We have to understand that when life punches us in the mouth, there's a reason. See, it's so easy to treat life's difficulties as excuses to not be faithful. But really, life's difficulties, they're the opportunities that God gives us to lean more into God's or into faithfulness to God. I want you to think about your life as we finish this off, the major parts of it, the areas you fall short and the reasons you have for falling short, the busyness, maybe that you use to justify your failures as a parent. Maybe the stress that you use to justify your lack of patience in life. The crazy schedule that crowds out any sort of sacrificial service. Maybe it's just, you know, it's this season. You keep on defaulting to that reason. It's just a busy season, but next season I'll follow hard after God. And it's been months. It's been years. If you got anything out of 1 Samuel 21, David gets it. Okay, he understands what it's like to be under pressure. I mean, no matter how bad, no matter how much it might feel like your boss wants to kill you, it's probably not as bad as having Saul as your boss. But see, when you're on the run for your life, it's not exactly the most convenient time to play your lyre and write some songs. And David gets that, I think. And yet, and yet, David actually stopped to do exactly that. And we're not going to get into all of it, but turn with me to Psalm 56 real quick. And then we'll bring this to a close. Psalm 56. <clears throat> I love this. David wrote not one, but two psalms about this incident at Gath. And it gives us a different angle. First Samuel tells us what happened. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 reveal to us what was going on in David's heart, his response. And if you look at the beginning of Psalm 56, it says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far off, far off terebinths, a miktam of David, 
when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. I don't think he's just talking about the Philistines. I think he's talking about Saul too. But look at what he says in verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And you might think, okay, you didn't do that though. When you were afraid, you put your trust in your own plan. You went to the Philistines. This is already after. Okay, this is after the plan fails. When he was deeply afraid, even after he fell, what does he do? What does he do after not trusting God? He trusts God. See, even if you mess up, even if you've been drifting away, it doesn't mean that you can't go back. David repents. See, our failures are an opportunity to return to life with God. That's what we see in Psalm 56. Our failures are an opportunity to return to life with God. Repentance is a gift. Give God the broken pieces and let him put things back together. Don't spiral, oh, well, I've been so far from God all this time. I'll try to figure it out on my own. And when I'm doing a little bit better, then I'll, no. Go to God right now. And we'll close this out, 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. I'll just run you through this. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. So what you see here is that after all of this, he goes to this cave to hide out. His family goes to him, but who else goes to him? All the broken people. Everyone in need, everyone whom life has punched in the mouth, they flock to David. See, why would God anoint David and then give him all this victory and then put him through the hardest time of his life? Why would he push David to his breaking point? Why would he test him like this? Because he's turning him into the kind of king that he wants him to be. The Lord's anointed is not to be a king that's like all the other nations. A king like Saul, who rules by strength. The Lord's anointed is going to rule by weakness. God is preparing David to be a king after his own heart, a God who knows, excuse me, a king who knows brokenness so he can lift up the broken. And if this sounds familiar at all, I think you're thinking on the right track. See verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. It sounds almost like another foolish plan. Why are you going to Israel's enemies? You're just going to get chased out again. But look at verse 4. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all that time. David was in the stronghold. The king says, yes, you've got to spare a room. Just leave your parents here. Why does he do this? Because who are his parents? David's father is Jesse, right? Best character in the Bible. Just kidding. Jesse's father was Obed. Obed's father was Boaz. Boaz, Boaz's wife was Ruth, a Moabite. An outcast in Israel, but David's salvation in Moab all those years later. Verse 5, And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Why does he go back to Judah? Why does God want him there? Okay, forget all of the details. Just focus on the big picture here. Why does he want him there? Because he's the king and the true king was always supposed to come from Judah. Genesis 
not from Benjamin, Saul's tribe, but from Judah, David's tribe. The plan is still on track. That's what we're seeing here. God's plan, not David. David will be king, but through setbacks, through trials, through the threats of Saul. And that's part of the plan. They have a purpose to prepare David. And if you've been paying attention, maybe you realize the story stretches beyond David. There are so many allusions in 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 5. What we see here, and maybe you have heard echoes of it, the true and final king, where will he come from? He will come from Judah. His genealogy would include outsiders like Ruth the Moabite, mentioned by name, and like with his father David, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for something else in life. They would flock to him. See, the ultimate purpose of of God bringing David through all of this was to get to his son. And listen, the ultimate purpose of everything that God is doing in your life, it's not any different. The Messiah is not going to come from your line, but understand the point that I'm making. All of the difficulties, all of the punches in the mouth that you're taking, they're not to push you away from God, they're to bring you closer to Christ. See, what do we know about Jesus? He was punched repeatedly in the mouth, both literally and figuratively, and yet he lived a perfect life. Were things stacked against him? Oh, yeah. Not only did he face temptation, Satan personally made it a point to tempt him in the wilderness. He was tried in every way as we are. He was slandered. He was attacked, betrayed, eventually beaten and crucified, and yet he never stumbled. He never made excuses. He never resorted to a plan be in the garden he prayed what not my will but your will be done and he did this why for sinners like you and me because you and i we couldn't do it we didn't do it we don't do it we turn away from god all the time he died for sinners and rebels and fools like us who stumble and fall in all these different ways so that we could by grace live for god freely without fear so that we could be with him. We'll close here. Sorry, I went really long, but I went really short last week. We'll close here. Barry Keenan did, in fact, kidnap Frank Sinatra. I don't want to leave you hanging too much. Frank Sinatra Jr., okay? And in case you're, like, really freaked out, he was 19 at the time, so he didn't kidnap, like, a little kid. He kidnapped, like, a teenager. Still bad, but Barry kidnapped him, and it was a comedy of errors, man. Like, everything about it was... So silly if it wasn't such a major crime. So he kidnaps him, but he leaves his gun at the scene of the crime. He didn't even need a gun, but he left his gun there with his fingerprints on it. He, he tries to get away, but he forgot to bring cash to fill up the getaway car with gas. And then Frank Sinatra calls uh, the number that they left, and he says, look, I want my son back. I'll give you a million dollars. And he and his accomplices are like, well, actually, we only need $240,000 so uh, why don't we save you? You know, like they're ar- he's bargaining down the ransom price and they kept arguing over the phone. Now, of course he got caught because his plan was terrible. Thankfully for him, he was let off easy because they found him to be clinically insane. But I was reading about him in the story and something stood out to me, a little detail. He was saying in this interview that he had felt when he was coming up with this plan that God was behind him. It was really weird. He said, God, he would talk to me, and he would tell me, go kidnap that kid, but don't hurt anybody. And he said he would always hear the voice of God telling him to do these things. And then he said when he started taking his meds for his, like, insanity, it went away. 
But the point is, okay, it's not about whether he heard the audible voice of God in his head or not. That doesn't really matter, okay? He was kind of a crazy guy. But what matters is that he had decided to do something clearly wrong that he never would have thought to do in his past, and he had convinced himself that God was okay with it. And this is what I want to leave you with. Do you think that God is okay with your life right now? This isn't judgment from me. I might not actually know everything that's going on with you. I know some. But just for you, you before God, do you think that God is okay with it? Have you convinced yourself that God is behind you no matter what you do, even if it's clearly in violation of his word? Have you convinced yourself right now, it's not that great, but I'll get it right later, it's fine, I'll change tomorrow or after this season? If that's you, it's time to stop justifying your drifting away from God. And it's time to turn back to him. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Turn away from that and go back to God. Ask him for grace to help you to turn your life around. But today's the day. Don't drift another minute. In fact, go to him right now. If you're here, it's not too late. Will you bow your heads with me? I want to give you a second, actually, a moment. Just you and God. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what your struggles are necessarily. I don't know what the reasons are why you've been struggling. <clears throat> Whatever's going on, just give you a moment to repent, to ask God for help. Father, we don't want to wake up one day and be shocked at the people that we've become. God, we don't want to wake up one day and look back at our lives with regret. God, we definitely don't want to show up, God, at the judgment at the gate of eternity and hear these words, I never knew you. God, there's so many reasons why we struggle to live the lives that we should live. And you know our weakness. So God, I pray that right now and today, that you would draw us back to you. I pray, God, that we would turn away from the things that take us away. God, I pray that you would help us to not justify our sin. God, I pray that you would help us to live with the right priorities, God, even if it's difficult at first. God, I pray that you would help us to live the lives you've called us to live, no matter what life brings our way. God, we need your grace for this. We rest in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.